Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 12. As we've said now several times over the course of this series, the book of Hosea is divided into three parts. The first part, chapters 1 to 3, develop the primary metaphors of marriage and family and provide us with most of the biographical detail about the prophet himself. That's where we learn that God compares himself to a husband whose wife is a wife of whoredom. God may be compared to Hosea the prophet. He too married a woman whom he knew was inclined to infidelity and betrayal, and yet he chose her anyway. Hear that, brothers and sisters. God knows who we are, and God knows what we will do, and yet he loves us and chooses us anyway. That is amazing grace. But it isn't cheap grace, and it isn't permissiveness towards sin. Like Hosea, God is horrified by our sin. Like Hosea, God has to pay for our sin. He buys us out of bondage and slavery. And like Hosea, God is willing to make use of firm discipline in order to heal and cleanse us of our addiction to sin. And like Hosea, God will be known to his people as my husband and not my master. He will be chosen and loved by the ones he has known and saved. In that way, God is like a husband who marries a wife of whoredom. And God is like a father who adopts children who have no reasonable claim upon him. He will adopt children into his family and he will shower them with unexpected blessing and favor. Those who did not know mercy will receive mercy and enjoy mercy in him forever. And those who are not his people will be made his people and called his sons and daughters through faith. That is the interpretation given to the imagery found in the first section of Hosea by both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in their New Testament epistles. And then in the middle section, in chapters 4 through 11, we worked our way through a fairly lengthy indictment wherein God detailed all the sins and idolatries of Israel that necessitated this firm, protracted, and severe approach. Now, here in chapter 12, we enter into the third and final section of the book, which is characterized by declarations of judgment, calls to repentance, and promises of future restoration. As I mentioned in last episode, most commentators disagree with the traditional chapter division here, meaning that they understand verse 11 of chapter 11 as the proper conclusion to the middle section of the book, and verse 12 of chapter 11 as the proper beginning of this third and final section. So we'll actually begin reading today with the last verse of chapter 11, and we'll proceed straight on from there into chapter 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. 
Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. All right, so here God seems to be delivering his verdict. He says, in essence, based on all that I have just reviewed, the verdict is that Ephraim is in covenant violation. Ephraim is characterized by lies and has been consistently unfaithful to the stipulations of the covenant, while Judah, at least for now, and not without some very troubling indications, is presently in formal compliance. That would be a decent vernacular summary of Hosea 11 verse 12. Israel requires punishment and Judah requires warning. That's where we stand at the hinge between these two sections. Chapter 12 verse 1 carries on this theme and expands upon Israel's misdeeds. The feeding on the wind idea refers to Israel's naive and frankly stupid foreign policy. Israel was trying to play one neighbor off against the other. He was poking the bear on the one hand and pulling the lion's beard on the other. It was madness, and it was leading toward a very predictable outcome. And it was also ultimately spiritually disloyal. Why didn't Israel honor the covenant he had with God? Why didn't he humble himself, repent of his sins, and appeal to God for mercy and rescue? That would have taken care of all their troubles in one foul swoop. But instead, they played diplomatic patty cakes with a couple of political monsters, and that strategy was now very predictably about to blow up in their faces. That's chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 2, then, means that God has an indictment against Judah. As I said, Judah's behavior here is not commendable. It's just a few decades and generations behind Israel. So God has punishment for Israel and a stern warning for Judah. And of course, that's exactly how the book of Hosea ended up functioning. I said at the start of the series that Hosea is often called a deathbed prophet. As he spoke these words, Israel, the northern kingdom, was in its last decade of life as a political entity. David Allen Hubbard says here, Since Hosea seems to have completed his ministry shortly before the fall of Samaria in 722-721 B.C., that event itself would have confirmed his validity as a prophet and prompted the early recording of his words. The oracles and stories were probably carried to Judah by refugees from the northern kingdom, closed quote. Are you hearing that? When everything Hosea prophesied started coming true, faithful individuals in Israel began collecting scrolls and writing down these oracles that Hosea had given, and they took them down to Judah as a warning, he goes on to say, Hosea's words, confirmed by the exile of the northern populace, would have gained relevance for Judah as her history began to parallel Israel's. Hosea's impact on Jeremiah, the dominant prophet of the Babylonian period, is well documented. Closed quote. So the defeat and scattering of Israel by the Assyrians was simultaneously an appropriate punishment and an urgent warning to the remnant and remainder of God's people. That's what happened, and that's what we need to see here. We'll jump back into the text at verse 3. 
In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Here the prophet is using the story of the patriarch Jacob to illustrate the nature of true repentance. Jacob, of course, started out his life as quite a sinner, but God wrestled with him. He fought with him. He was firm with him, even rough with him, in love. And thus we see that at the end of his life, Jacob walked with a limp, but he walked with God. And that's the point being made here. Look at verse 6 again. So you... By the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. So you, Israel, be like Jacob. Pray and ask for help to return to God. Then hold fast to God in love and justice. Wait on him, attend him, worship him, serve him, and never leave him. That's how you follow the example of brother Jacob. That's how you find your way home. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions. And through the prophets gave parables. Here we see how far the Israel of the prophet's day is from their original namesake, from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. As exhibit A, he points to their corrupt economic practices. Hosea more typically points to the sins of idolatry and political duplicity. But here we see that he also does care about the conduct of the people of God in the marketplace. Daniel Carroll says usefully here, the denunciation of socioeconomic sin is not as prominent as in the other 8th century prophets, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. Hosea's attention focuses instead on foreign policy and syncretism. All these prophets, though, condemn the inseparableness of the public square and faith in Yahweh, closed quote. So whether the emphasis is on politics or economics, the prophets all agree that how we behave publicly has to align with what we believe privately. Yahweh's people have to conduct themselves in a particular way. Right belief and right practice have to go hand in hand. Now, of course, you can see that emphasis in the New Testament as well. Many of the Apostle Paul's letters are divided equally between concerns related to right belief and concerns related to right behavior. Go to the midpoint of several of Paul's letters and you can identify an obvious hinge. Ephesians 4 verse 1, for example, which is the dead middle point of the book of Ephesians, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
So, having talked about grace and faith in the first three chapters of that epistle, now Paul wants to talk about how to live like people who actually believe in all those marvelous things. Belief and behavior must go together. Old Testament and New, we discover that God is very concerned about that. Here in Hosea, he says that he is going to punish the people with poverty because they were obsessed with wealth. And they abandoned the ethics of the covenant in order to line their own pockets with dishonest gain. And it wasn't as if he hadn't warned them that this was coming. He sent many prophets to teach them and to rebuke them, but they simply would not listen. And that is why punishment now is the only appropriate option. Verse 11. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. Now verse 12 is very interesting. Again, the example of Jacob is being offered as something of a blueprint for growth, repentance, and change. God had to send Jacob into exile in order to make him a man who could love and be loved. He had to die, in essence, in order to be born again. In verse 13, we get another historical illustration. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Here, Hosea is saying that long ago, God used the prophet Moses to bring his people out of exile and into the promised land. Will they listen to a prophet and be saved in this day, he's asking? That's, that's what he's saying here. Once again, Israel, God is sending you a prophet. And once again, if you listen to him, you may find yourself on the road to freedom. But if you reject him, then you will perish on the road of rebellion. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to listen to, Israel? That is the question. Verse 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Here the prophet indicates that he does not anticipate any change of heart at this point on the part of Israel. Israel has become hardened in his rebellion against God. Therefore, this punishment, this banishment, this grinding down and bending low, this horrible season of darkness, judgment, and exile will come. It must come, for Ephraim has given bitter provocation. I said at the beginning of this episode that this final section of Hosea is characterized by declarations of judgment, calls to repentance, and promises of future restoration. We've just heard a declaration of judgment, which means that in the next two chapters we can expect to meet a call to repentance and a promise of future restoration. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches.
Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on the ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 